China's falling currency and what it means to the sector. This is industry focus. Hi, Fools. Motley Fool Analyst Michael Douglas here today for this Thursday Energy edition of Industry Focus. And I'm here with longtime Fool contributor Tyler Crow. Tyler, how you doing? Doing pretty good, man. Good to see you actually in here with I, – I, in with energy. We, you know, had Sean's been doing it for a long time. He's out on vacation. But, hey, you know what? We'll bring in somebody else and you, you see have to, You have to pull on the B string from time to time. Hey, you know what? Sometimes you got to bring somebody up from AAA. You got to develop the pipeline <laughs> a little bit. What happens if, you know, Sean goes down on the DL? We got to bring somebody up. So I, I appreciate you're, you're You're very kind. So let's hop right in today. Um, commodities markets uh, seem to care a great deal about what's, uh, of course, first off, let me say, you know, China currency moves have been a big story in the stock market this week. Um, the you commodity markets—you can't go anywhere. Like you go to Yahoo Finance, go to Bloomberg. Everybody wants to talk about China's devaluing currency. It's it's a big deal. Yeah, apparently, and 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 certainly in the commodities markets as well. So why there? Why why do the commodities markets care so much about China's currency? Well, you know, obviously when we people think of China right now as the manufacturer of the world, you know they. They import a lot of material. They export a lot of refined finished goods or whatnot. And one of the biggest reasons that people see com- ex- currency exchange movements in general, we'll talk. We'll, we'll start there and then go specifically to China. So, what has happened is the Chinese central bank has made a couple moves to deflate its currency in relation to the global market, but most specifically, what we're concerned about here is the U.S. dollar, mm-hmm. because for many years. Uh, the Chinese yuan was actually pegged to the U.S. dollar, but a couple of years ago they let it, you know, kind of free float on the market. And what they're doing now is they're saying that because the U.S. dollar is so strong, we're going to kind of devalue our currency a little bit more to be more competitive on the global market in reference to like Europe and a lot of its other markets, which it sells to. You know, they don't just sell to us, right? So when you look at that, uh, when a country like China decides to devalue its currency, basically what it's trying to do is trying to make that the products that it exports to the world less expensive. But on the flip side, when you look at something like commodities, it makes everything they import more inspe- expensive. You know, If you're looking at oil, natural gas, coal, uh, anything that it needs to import, iron ore, a lot of metals and things like that. And, and on that point, I mean, China imports like a lot. China imports a lot. Um, for every, I guess you could say mining raw material in the world, sure. lead, copper, iron ore, nickel, any single one, they they import or they consume more than 40%. It's somewhere between 40% and 50% for every single commodity on the planet. That is a lot. Yikes. So what happens is when that currency devalues, the all of these commodities I just mentioned, they're priced in U.S. dollars. So it's more expensive for them to buy them when they are imported. And if you're you know, thinking common supply and demand, more expensive commodities means lower demand, which you know is going to hit the bottom line for commodities companies long term. So when you, when you look at that in that sense, it's this idea that, oh, if China devalues its currency, it is going to lower the overall demand for commodities more so than other sectors you know healthcare or uh, you know, retail aren't going to be as impacted at, as something like a commodities market makes sense so as 
we all know there are plenty of investors who think about forex and and that sort of thing. A lot of them are day traders, so really not quite, let's say, the foolish way. But how should a long termer think about? Uh, about this devaluation and and what it means for the commodities market, um, they could stick their hands over their ears and go la 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 la, because you know <laughs> in in many ways this this does for a long term perspective it doesn't have a whole lot of things. Let's I mean we need to really keep this in perspective here. It's it's devalued its currency three percent in the past couple of days. Yeah, that's not a huge move in the long in the grand scheme of things. And if you look over the past. Four or five years, the uh, Chinese yuan has actually, you know, kind of strengthened in relation to the dollar over that long-term trend. So this three percent, you know, over the longer term has is you know well within the margin of error. So, you know, from a long-term perspective, it's not that big of a deal in that sense. And it, anybody who is looking at their portfolio today. Uh, based on this and is making any move based on the Chinese yuan, it's probably not a great move. So if you're looking long-term at commodities, we're still going to have demand. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not just in China, mind you. There are markets that are growing much, much faster than China, not only from a GDP base, but from a population base. And these new countries or these other countries are going to be major centers of demand in coming years. You know, uh, I think it's... 40 of the top 50 uh, fastest-growing GDPs in the world right now are in Africa, Middle East, and Central Asia. These areas are going to require the resources, and it's going to reduce that total consumption percentage of China, and it's going to kind of broaden that scope and make demand for commodities a huge thing for the next 25, 30 years. Yeah, so uh, the the takeaway here probably is keep calm and carry on. Yeah. So turning from that, let's uh, let's step over into uh, beginning energy investing. And 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 listen, this is actually a segment that we came up especially for Michael Douglas. Right. I mean, because those of you who have who listen to all the shows, and and by the way, if you don't listen to Every Day of Industry Focus, you totally should because they're all awesome. Know that I uh, I pop into financials and I pop into healthcare. I don't really pop into energy very often. Um, and so. Uh, this is a, a nice chance for someone like me, who's just not a specialist in energy, to, to learn a little bit about energy, and hopefully y'all can too. So, um, thinking about uh, approaching energy from another sector, right? A lot of people are, are retail investors, and they're investing in uh, consumer goods and tech companies. You know, um, stuff they know, right? Exactly, uh, obeying the uh, the Lynch principle. Um, and so, what are some metrics and um, and sort of um, measures that you can take from some of these other sectors and apply to energy? Well, I think one of the things you have to first do is kind of change the mind frame of your investing. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of investing in terms of retail or consumer goods and things like that is very much based on brand. Mm -hmm. You know, you're buying... You know a certain brand of toothpaste or whatnot, and you know brand brings pricing power. You know can command margins. When we're talking about energy, especially oil and gas, it's it's a commodity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know you're not going to a Exxon Mobil gas station and spending more than the mom and pop station that it's across the street. You're not going to look at it and go, oh well, because it's Exxon Mobil uh, gas station, I need to get that one. There's no premium there whatsoever. So. Y- you, one of the things that you have to think about is the competitive advantages in sectors such as energy 
are can be different. So you're looking for like low cost producers, for you're example. You're looking, f- yeah. Lo- who are the low cost producers? Are, are there any geographic advantages that a company has? Say, for example, like you know, a company that is producing oil in Texas today is mm-hmm. going to get a higher price per barrel for their oil than somebody is producing in North Dakota because the transportation costs to get it to a refinery are greater. Mm-hmm. So there's you know things like that. There's geographic advantages you want to think about. You want to think about production costs. And those are some of the things you, you, are, are the kind of elements you have to think about rather than what instead of getting the highest price, it's mm-hmm. more how can I reduce my cost? And mm-hmm. that's kind of the mentality you have to bring to it much more so than say – you know, retail consumer goods. How does scale play into that? Because, you know, certainly in other sectors, you know, you can get that sort of GNA leverage, right? You know, spreading out your administrative costs over more units of revenue um, in, especially in, in pharma um, and insurance, that it happens a lot. Um, how does that play in here? Uh, scale is, if you look across the industry, scale is an absolutely huge thing. And mm. one of the biggest reasons scale is so big is. N- in some ways, cost, but more importantly for the energy sector is access to capital, mm-hmm. cheap capital. More importantly, if you look at a comp- you know, if we start down on kind of those mom and pop shale producers that we have in the United States today, these kind of these go go go, we're going to go out, and we're going to produce really really quickly, and you know, two three years ago when oil was at a hundred dollars per barrel, that looked like a great idea. We can you know, we can get debt financing at junk bond rates, but for some reason are still at 6 7%, which is pretty low cost of capital. And, you know, they can go out and grow. But when you have a cyclical commodity like oil uh, dropping as far as it has, all of a sudden, you know, their access to the financial markets is much more constrained. Mm-hmm. And, you know, compare that with, you know, an ExxonMobil or a Chevron or somebody like that who have investment grade ratings that are better than the United States Treasury. Right. Kind of and, hard to argue with. Yeah, that. so you're getting better than treasury rates on your debt, and you have this much easier access to capital, uh, which allows you to fund these major development projects over long term. And having that ability, that scale, really helps. And at the same time, energy has this value chain. You know, you start with the production, you move through the transportation, the refining, the actual retail of it, and having assets in all of those can really help because it helps balance out that commodities swing. Mm-hmm. Low prices means better refining margins. High prices means better product uh, cost on production. Makes sense. So then thinking, I mean, you know, we are an investing show. So in, in, in your mind, in your personal opinion, what's the best or a fantastic stock for a newbie energy investor today? So some of the things that it, people can get very nervous about in energy investing is the fact that it is extremely volatile. So Mm -hmm. if you're kind of want to dip your toes in and look for something a little less volatile, one thing I would really recommend is looking at midstream pipeline companies. Very, very stable businesses, has a model very similar to a toll booth, has that geographic advantage Mm -hmm. of we're the only pipeline in an area. And, you know, a couple companies that are really high on my list in that regard are Enterprise Products Partners, uh, ticker symbol EPD. And Magellan Midstream Partners, uh, ticker MMP. These two companies, very, very stable businesses, have long-term cash-generating abilities that allow them to pay a good, strong dividend. And you're not going to see the volatile uh, price swings that you see with something like an oil and gas producer. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, makes sense. Sounds good. And actually, that, that this all transitions very nicely into a reader question we got. And by the way, folks, 
we love to get uh, questions. From be- all five of our listeners. Uh, well, we, we've got a few more than that. But, uh, uh, you know, 10 or 11 once you include my mother. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but we just love getting questions. Shoot them at us. Industryfocus at fool.com. And again, that's industryfocus at fool.com. We don't get to, to air every question on the show, but we certainly read them all. And we just love getting them. So please let us know. We're here to help the world invests better, and that's a learning process we can all do together. So please, please, please send along questions. So we got a note from Aaron, and Aaron had some very nice things to say. Thank you, Aaron. Um, and uh, then sort of a, a two-part question, which really boils down to two points. I'm just going to summarize it because it, it, we're a, a little pressed for time. Um, and it's essentially sort of on the one part – can you comment on how to use tax loss harvesting as part of your overall investment strategy in light of the recent stock price declines in oil and energy companies? And then the second part is sort of, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure whether ConocoPhillips can sustain its dividend. So let me, let me talk about the tax loss harvesting side a little bit, and then we'll go to ConocoPhillips. Um, you know, Aaron, when it comes to that, um, we, we we can't give individual investment advice. Um, so certainly, tax loss harvesting is something that some people do. We can't tell you whether it's a good idea or not in this in this situation. Um, so you we're should... also not the best at it. Yeah. Saying, in my personal opinion, I have never. I look at it, tax loss yeah, harvesting. I look so. at it and go, I'm I'm better at analyzing a company right. or kind of looking at something. Uh, individual portfolio, I'm still working on that. <laughs> Right. Um, so what I would what I would highly recommend is you know talk to talk to a tax professional or someone who can really help guide you through the pluses and the minuses of that. Um, and then there's also lots of free resources about that, including on fool.com. Um, so um, you know feel free to follow up with us um, and and good luck on that part. But let's talk about ConocoPhillips' dividend real quick. Yeah. So he was asking about the tax losses because he's a shareholder in ConocoPhillips and was thinking, hey, do I want to hang on to this or maybe take a little bit of a loss and move on to somebody like an ExxonMobil or Kinder Morgan who has a little bit more stable um, outlook right now? And so, you know, the question is, is, is the dividend sustainable? And I guess you could kind of look at it too. There's couple things working in its favor and a couple things that are working against it. In its favor, it is one of the lowest costs – actually, it has one of the lowest cost supplies uh, for an independent oil and gas producer. Uh, its break-even point for U.S. unconventional shale drilling is between $45 and $50 per barrel, which is very, very low and it looks quite promising. Um, a lot of its big capital requirement spending is actually starting to come off the books. You know, They have two major projects that are coming online this year which means that it's going to reduce its capital spending by about $2.5 billion, at least by between this year and next, which is you know going to help on that end. And it expects it to be budget neutral, which means it can cover its operational um, cap, capital expenditures and its dividend with cash generated within the company by 2017. It hasn't cut its dividend in 25 years. That's a pretty good thing. And yeah, the company, it's a little, a little tough to argue with comp- that. Companies, you know, they... they Take that very seriously. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, there doesn't appear to be any balance sheet weaknesses with it right now. It it has some flexibility to take on a little bit more debt to kind of bridge the gap. Mm-hmm. So, there's not a lot of issues there. The things working against it, obviously, is as an exploration and production company solely, without all those you know refining or transportation uh, businesses, it's completely tethered to oil and gas prices. So, there is going to be that volatility that we were just talking about, and if oil and gas prices were to remain very, very low for a long time, that, yeah, it could definitely happen. And the other thing that's working against it, some of its major capital projects that it's just brought online, such as oil, and, uh, oil sands up in Canada and some of its 
uh, liquefied natural gas projects um, aren't going to generate as high of returns as mm-hmm. they had expected. There's going to be somewhere in the range of about 15% internal rate of return. So kind of summing all that up, I, I don't see like within the next two or three years any real issues with Conoco divi- ConocoPhillips' dividend not being sustainable. Um, cash is a little tight, but it's manageable until those major capital sp- uh, spending projects start to wind down. Mm-hmm. And even with oil in that 50 to $60 range, ConocoPhillips won't suffer you know, m- immensely, which could be a case for, because there's a lot of companies that will and probably will get knocked out because of it, which you know eventually leads to higher prices because less production. So, Aaron, I'm not completely worried about the ConocoPhillips dividend. Um, and if you are worried about hanging on to those shares for the long term for that reason, I don't see it as a huge issue today. All right, sounds good, Tyler. As always, thanks for thanks for your two cents uh, and and for having me on as a guest and the uh, guest host for the show. We'll bring you in every once in a while. We got to keep you fresh. Keep, you know, keep that 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 extra reserve in place. <laughs> Just keep things. Yeah, the the beast ring has to get some practice from time to exactly. time too. Uh, yeah, you're very kind, um, folks. Thanks much for listening to today's uh, industry focus. Uh, stay tuned for tomorrow's. Um, certainly very excited for it. Um, check back to fool.com for all of your investing needs and full on. As always. People in the show, and of course, the Motley Fool may have uh, may own shares of companies that we discuss in the show, and the Motley Fool may have uh, recommendations for or against stocks that are mentioned in the show. So, as always, please, 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 do not buy or sell or do anything with a stock based just on what you hear. Always do your own due diligence and do your own research. It's the foolish way. It's the right way to invest, and it is the right thing to do. Thanks. 